Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. I hope you've had a good sleep. I hope that um, some at least took to heart the encouragement to read Philippians along with me yesterday. I encourage you to read it as you would a letter that is from beginning to end at least once a day. And perhaps during the day, some of you will come and tell me how you're getting on with it. I realize that we don't all have the same relationship with the printed text. It comes more easily to some than to others. So we can listen to it read. My wife loves to listen to David Suchet reading the NIV when she's driving in the car. Uh, She hasn't asked me yet to record myself reading so she can (laughs) listen to me. But it will be eternally worthwhile to invest a little bit of time in the skill of personal reading. I'm convinced that one of the biggest unspoken issues in Christian discipleship is the problem in reading. It's not a race. It's not scanning as many of us learn to do for work. It's reading slowly, prayerfully, thoughtfully. The late James Sire has a wonderful little book entitled How to Read Slowly. It's not a great title for a book. On Thursday morning at my seminar and personal Bible study, I plan to talk a little bit more about this. But we're going to read from Philippians 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
And we'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound in account of me. Whatever happens, or literally one thing, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and not by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We saw yesterday that Paul begins and ends the opening paragraph by talking about prayer. And when the theme of your letter is partnership in the gospel, then prayer is a great place to begin. He thanks God for them and prays for them with joy because of their partnership with him in the gospel. And that gives him the assurance that God has indeed started a work in them. And he is, of course, confident that what God has started, he will complete. He expresses his deep affection for them. This relationship that is centered on and cemented by their partnership with him in the gospel. And in his loving concern for them, he prays for them. And very interestingly, he tells them precisely how he prays for them. So here's the first question of today. How would you have prayed for the Philippines? How would I have prayed? Paul wasn't content to pray, Lord, we just ask you to bless the Philippines. Do you ever listen to ourselves praying? Do you ever wonder here in Northern Ireland where the words just and bless came from? (laughs) Because it is a fascinating thing. I don't say this to make fun of anybody's praying, but just to encourage us to maybe think a little bit about it. What do we mean? Lord, I just ask you. You mean it's the only thing I'm asking you? I'm so scared of you. I'm scared of asking too much, but I just ask this. But then we add another just, and it's something else, and another just. And in fact, just turns out to be just a redundant word. And what do we mean by bless? Don't we love people enough to think through what that might mean? Paul did. Paul thought about it. He thought about this people. And based on his own experience of gospel work, he knew there were certain things above all others that they would need as they continued their partnership in the gospel. So he prays for their progress, their maturing in three areas, their Christian perception, their character, and their works. He prays for their love to increase. And of course, if he'd stopped there, we would all have understood it. Of course, we need love. But their love to increase in knowledge and depth of insight, in spiritual discernment, 
We don't always think of love in the context of how we use our minds, do we? And yet, Old Testament and you, I shall love the Lord thy God with all thy mind as well as the other things. Partnering in the gospel requires the use and development of this, our mind, thinking, thinking through, growing in knowledge, and growing in the wisdom of how to apply that knowledge in wise ways, a growing understanding of the gospel itself, of our culture, of people, of the language we use to communicate. We can attempt to partner in the gospel in very unwise and even unloving ways. If we speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, it's just a noise. That's in the context of communication. It's loving communication. It's speaking in language that people can grasp, can understand. It's understanding. It's sitting where they sit so that we listen to them and we know their concerns. We know the backstory. We listen for it. We understand how we're being heard. We are prepared to think these things through. And in my experience, I haven't always done that well in our culture. Our culture is changing rapidly. We need to keep listening. The use of language changes. We need to keep listening. I've seen so many students during my lifetime who make the critical mistake of developing their minds in their chemistry or French or physiology or whatever it is and leaving their minds undeveloped when it comes to God's things. And so a huge divide grows up And they may get to the top of the tree in their chosen profession or career when it comes to an understanding be men, as Paul would say, in spiritual understanding, in understanding we're still children. Don't make that mistake as a young person. Don't put the Bible away on some shelf just for the little religious time. Use the same amount of intellectual energy. Worship God with your mind as well as your heart and your spirit. Because that is crucial in the battle we face. And standing against the wiles of the evil one and knowing how to communicate. That's one of the things he prays for them. Growing in that area. I'll leave the others for you uh, to think about. Because we need to move on and consider this next fantastic part of chapter 1. Where Paul deals not now with praying for them. But with the issue of circumstances. There's an old farmer in Armagh where I grew up. And uh, these are in the days of GPS. And he had a wonderful habit if you asked him for directions, he would draw them out in his hand. If you know people like that. So he'd say, well, you go down the street and you turn left at the pub and pass the cow that's standing up in the field. Oh, no, maybe it's sitting down. Never mind. And move that way and then turn right. No, 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 no. And then he would rub his hand out. And then he would start again. And he would get more confused and he'd rub that and then he would start again and, he, and then he would turn and say, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. 
And the difficulty is that that's precisely where many of us are. If I were God, I wouldn't start from here. If only God had put me in different circumstances, with a different body, with a different set of gifts, with a different set of friends, with a different neighborhood, that would make, oh, I could partner in the gospel there. Don't we understand the sovereignty of God enough to understand that we are who we are before him at the time in history, in the place of history, for God to use what he's given to us where we are and to embrace it and thank God for it and open our heart to what... Listen to Paul. I want you to know... I want you to know this, that my circumstances that seem negative and just a disaster for the gospel have actually turned out to advance the gospel. Paul, probably under house arrest in Rome, but as he writes, do you find any hint of self-pity? Any hint that he wishes he were somewhere else or was somebody else? Do you know a question that people are often asked? If you were to come back to earth, who would you like to be? And of course we think, oh, I'd like to be David Beckham or his wife or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every single person in this room could say before God, I'd love to come back as myself. Playing the little games, I wish I were... Somewhere else, I wish I was someone else. These circumstances look so negative. They actually serve to advance the gospel. Because Paul may have been in prison, but he never allowed the prison to get into him. And there is a difference. And a lot of us this morning probably sense that we're in a prison it might be a physical prison of physical limitations. And other senses of prison, of circumstances and difficulties of all kinds. And I don't say this to minimize anything. I'm not trying to be happy, clappy, let's be positive. Let's be real, but not just real about our circumstances, real about God. Paul was in prison, but never allowed it to get inside him. He understood that his life was always in God's hands, whether in prison or not. God was never not in control, and he could serve God either in prison or outside. The the mindset is striking, it's humbling, it's challenging. I find it so. Has life turned out? For you, as you had hoped, oh, you can see how it could have been, if only. And when adversity hits, we can instinctively make a list of the impact of the adversity on our ambitions, on our relationships, on our finances. But what about the advance of the gospel? That was what Paul was concerned about. Of course, in our context, it's sometimes possible to change our circumstances. 
Find another job, for example. Move house, for example. But what's the prime motivation for change? Amongst the many legitimate reasons for changing job and so on, do we ever shape our decisions in terms of the advance of the gospel? And what might circumstantially, in terms of our own comfort, be very difficult, might be precisely what is required to advance the gospel. How did it work with him? Well, please note, there was no miraculous earthquake this time. We can be so superficial in our reading of Scripture, we come across a miracle and say, I love that bit. But when God keeps a guy in prison, we don't like that bit. God works in his ways. No miraculous earthquake. But the gospel advanced in two ways. First, he got to tell the gospel to people he might otherwise never have met, the members of the Praetorian Guard. Secondly, his imprisonment emboldened other Christians to start speaking the gospel. Paul's imprisonment would have involved him being chained to an elite Soldier, Now, can you imagine the assignment of being chained to Paul? You just couldn't get away from the guy. Just impossible. And he's there. And eventually you have to talk. And why are you here? I'm here for Jesus Christ. What? What do you mean? Who? What? Who is that? What? And so he gets the opportunity every three hours to share the gospel with a different soldier or however many times they change the shift. And they heard the gospel and it started to be talked all over the place and soldiers were coming to Christ. Why was he in prison? Well, we could go through all the... Well, I'm in prison because people have been unfair and unjust. And you see, if you could get a chance, would you go and speak to somebody for me? Because I shouldn't really be here and you need to get me out of here and we've got to get my... Is that the message that people got? No, says Paul. They know why I'm here. I'm here for Christ. He told the soldiers about Jesus. He announced the good news of forgiveness in his name. And the guard duty changed and the soldiers and the stories and all the stories were the same. We've got this weird prisoner under house arrest, awaiting trial by saying, never met anyone or heard anyone like this. He's in prison because of Christ. Let me tell you about him. And because he was in prison, there was a second major positive. Paul being in chains had galvanized many Christians who up to this point perhaps hadn't had the courage to raise their heads above the parapet to get on with sharing the gospel. It's what you call a chain reaction. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't. You know, some of you really, come on. This is County Antrim. We're sharp here. <laughs> or County Londonderry, whichever one it is. But what an interesting strategy for evangelism. Lock up all the preachers and get the job done. I don't actually mean that. But Paul's imprisonment gained publicity for Christ and encouraged many believers to speak the gospel boldly. Think about that story today. Think about the God who is the God of your circumstances. And see 
how that could be turned to the advancement of the gospel with a nurse, with the old person beside you, with a person who shares your hospital ward with the person, your colleague and work with, whoever. But here's the disappointing part. Some were preaching Christ with ulterior motives of making trouble for Paul. It's hard to be precise about what they were saying since Paul doesn't go into the detail. But it was obviously critical and hurtful and damaging. Perhaps because of Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar, which was misunderstood. Perhaps they were saying things like, you know, if, if, if Paul really was God's man, why is he in prison? No smoke without fire. He's bringing dishonor to Christ. We are the people. We are the people. We, got, we are not in prison. You can see that God is blessing us. He's not blessing Paul. Their real motives were obvious. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, they were jealous of Paul. It raises a question, doesn't it? Do we find it hard to believe that Christian preachers, that those that you listen to each week could be guilty of this kind of thing? In my late teens, I was starting to do some preaching. My motives were all over the place. I wanted to be that person standing in front of the big crowd so you can see how long God has had to teach me the lesson. And I find myself starting to be critical of those who were. One of them was the late Derek Bingham, known to many in this room. And I knew my attitude was wrong, so I wrote to him. And I apologized for thinking and speaking critically of him. He, of course, was blissfully unaware of all of this. But he wrote a very kind and sensitive letter back to me. And in his letter, he said this, The world of Christian ministry is riddled with jealousy. Never forgotten it. I've seen... Quite a few like me over the years, frustrated young men full of theology and ideas about themselves, but exhibiting little of the grace and humility of their Lord. And with this rush to success, thankfully God graciously has ways of dealing with youthful hubris. But when it persists into adulthood, it's desperately corrosive and desperately damaging. But now listen to Paul's question. What does it matter? How would you have replied to that? Of course it matters. It matters to me. It hurts. It's so discouraging when other Christians say things like this. Here I am. I'm trying to do something for Christ. And all I seem to get is criticism and misrepresentation. But Paul doesn't mean what does it matter to me? He means, what does it matter in terms of the gospel? In terms of the advance of the gospel? It doesn't matter because the gospel is still being preached. And that's what matters to Paul. Not the mixed up motives of other preachers or even his own occasional mixed up motives. What matters is that Christ is preached. The temptation, you see, 
would be to react to this kind of thing in a kind of selfish, righteous anger. But if Paul did that, he could so easily come across as a hurt and embittered man and ruin the case for the gospel, made to look and feel ashamed when he stands before the Lord. Paul is confident, confident that he will be delivered from falling into this trap and dishonoring the Lord for four reasons. Let me just quickly mention them. Number one, their prayers for him. This is just amazing, isn't it? That Paul relies much on the prayers of others. Earlier he detailed how he prays them. Now he expresses his need of their prayer for him and perhaps also their need to pray for him because praying for Paul would be a healthy and positive antidote to the potential emergence of envy and rivalry against Paul. This is good practical advice. So here's another question. I love questions. Think of your conversations so far this week at New Horizon. Okay, are you, are you there? The conversations at New Horizon? Now tell me this. If we were to remove from those conversations everything that was critical of others, how much would be left? When we find our minds, our words heading in this critical direction, especially of those who are seeking to serve God, why don't we replace it with positive prayer for them? The second thing that he's confident is going to help is the support and strengthening constantly supplied by the Holy Spirit. You know, because God is always for us, not against us. The Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts to pour out the love of God, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, to point us to the cross, to get us to ask those basic questions. When was it that God started to love you, Gilbert? Was it when you decided you were really going to get turned on for Jesus? No, it wasn't. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And one of the great ministries of the Spirit of God in our hearts is to point us to the cross and fill our hearts with the love of God so that we have that security that helps us to keep going in the midst of criticism and hardship. Third reason he's confident is because of the settled direction of his life for him to live is Christ. Not personal ease or hurt feelings, or personal reputation, but Christ. Therefore, if Christ is preached, that's what mattered most to Paul, because it wasn't about Paul. It was about Christ. Christ was the hub around which 
His life revolved. So as long as Christ was priest, he wouldn't simply not be angry. Please notice this. This is much stronger than, okay, I'm going to try hard not to be angry. He would positively rejoice, whisper it, rejoice. He would positively rejoice. And indeed, he said, I will continue to rejoice. That was the mindset, letting things go. Letting go of the innumerable things that people either say intentionally or often unintentionally. That we can so easily take the wrong way. That hurt us. Letting them go is a hard thing. But sometimes that's exactly what we need to do because for us to live is Christ. Now please note, this is not Paul endorsing sub-Christian motivation. Paul has not been given a mandate on earth to sort out everybody's motivation. Listening to some people, you think that's precisely what their job was. That's not Paul's job. That's God's job. God will deal with people in his own time. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. If Christ is preached, he can and will rejoice in that. So to all you preachers out there, preach Christ. Make Christ the issue. Put Christ at the heart of the gospel because he is the heart of the gospel. Don't tire of Jesus. Don't assume that people know him and talk about other things. Don't preach Christ plus. Don't replace Christ with the nuances of your particular theological persuasion. Preach Christ and be aware, not just of the selfish and sinful motivation of others, but the selfish and sinful motivation in your own heart and ask God to deal with it. But don't make the mistake of looking so far within that you're trying to sort all your motives out to get them 100% pure before you'll do anything because guess what? You'll never do anything. They'll not be sorted out this side of glory. That's another excuse for bad motivation. It's just the reality of the human heart. Get on with preaching Christ and rejoice when others do the same. The fourth reason he's confident that he will be delivered from making a mistake here and dishonoring the Lord is the basic gospel truth that to die is gain. If his circumstances, including the criticism and misrepresentation of him by some Christian preachers, lead to his death? Well, why would he feel injured or resentful? Because to die as a believer in Christ is gain. There's another obvious question here, isn't there? Is that how we see death? For Paul, the next knock on the door could either be the executioner or the person to set him free. Prison wasn't a punishment. It was just a holding until you're hearing, and then either you were executed or exiled or you were set free. So he needs to think about both. But it is his way of thinking about this that is, well, to me, is so startling. Which is better? Should I stay or should I go? I'm not going to sing the song. It's all right. <laughs> but is that how we think about it? Of course I'm going to stay. Should I stay or should I go? 
And if I had the choice, which one would I choose? And you notice with Paul, this isn't a choice between two negatives, but between two positives. Staying's a positive, going is a positive. In fact, Paul tells us he would prefer to sleep, to die. And if you don't know what I mean by that reference, you need to get John Wyatt's book, Dying Well, and get a hold of his seminar material. He would prefer to die, not because he was old or tired of life or seriously ill or even suffering in prison, because he knew it to be the case that to die is gain for him. In what way? Well, he tells us, very simply, dying means being with Christ. And if we're serious about to me to live as Christ, then being with Christ is obviously the goal, the fulfillment, the supreme joy of life. You'll notice he doesn't express it the way we tend to in this country. You know, when I die, I'll go to heaven. He doesn't talk like in those terms. I'm not denying its reality, but he doesn't talk because heaven could be quite a scary place. You know, if you find yourself in this vast area and looking around and, hmm, you know, gosh, didn't expect him to be here. And... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's being with Christ. And listen, he knew that would be far better. Listen to the language. This is far better than anything I have experienced on earth. Now, you think of the life of the Apostle Paul. He had some amazing experiences with Christ on earth. But even the highest point of his spiritual encounters with the risen Lord were as nothing compared to what he was looking forward to. What lies beyond? Oh, we remember Hamlet's famous words, to sleep, perchance, to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams might come. And we're frightened, many of us, because we haven't allowed our hearts to be prepared by the decisions we take, by the daily walk with Jesus. We're like Enoch. In the end, God might say, do you know what, son? There's no point going home for your tea. Just come on home here. <laughs> we at that point yet? I'm not at that point yet. I'd love to be at that point. I remember hearing my father repeat the stories of two old preachers, and they were in their 80s or 90s, and they were both dying. And one of them wrote to the other and said this. I'm sorry. I've raced you to heaven all my life. See you there. That's the difference it makes to take the kind of changes that Paul is talking about here as we look at our circumstances. To me, to live is Christ. To die is gain because it's being with Jesus. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive it to myself that where I am, there you also can be. What an amazing thing. What preparations is Jesus making? 
to prepare heaven for you and me. It's, it's just staggering to even begin to imagine. But what was better for Paul? Wasn't necessary the primary consideration. What was better for them? And as he reflected on that, he concluded that their spiritual joy and progress. What a wonderful ambition. To live your life for the progress and joy of others. That that might tip the scale in the direction of him hanging on for a while and having to waive his personal preference. How do you think about death? Can you identify with Paul's approach? Because it raises this Another basic question, and it's this. Do we actually believe the gospel? Why is it that church after church, individual after individual, hardly ever talk about death, about heaven, about the return of Christ, about the eternal reality? Have we got so confused by a gospel of kingdom now that we've forgotten that this world is not the only one there is. It's not even the most real one. Isn't that a beautiful sound, that bird singing? That is just one. It's a little touch of the sound of heaven, a bird from another world. There is an eternal reality that we are called to live for. Paul wasn't desperately clinging on to life at all costs, as many are. He wasn't, in the famous words of Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, raging against the dying of the light. Nor was he simply submitting himself stoically, step up or lip, to death's inevitability. His approach is altogether different because death is not the end. Listen to his amazing statement to Timothy that by his appearance, Christ Jesus abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Our gospel message is an answer to death. Not simply to life, but to death. And that changes everything. Because for Paul, death wasn't at all the dying of the light. It was going to be with the one who is the light of the universe. Of course, going to be with Christ can raise other questions. Maybe some of us thinking, yeah, but I'm not ready. Well, why not? Perhaps not lived as you think you should. Well, isn't it time you started? Do you feel you need a little bit more time down here for what, let me ask? I say it gently. Is reducing my golf handicap the major ambition for retirement? What are we living for? What is the point of my life? Do I think that now that I'm 66... I can't believe I actually say that. 66. I feel like a 13-year-old. I occasionally act like one, but... Does that mean it's over? To me, 
to live as Christ. Oh, Jesus taught us so many stories to prepare us for this. And parable after parable, concertining time to get us to think eternally. Don't lay up treasure on earth. Why on earth would you invest in a bank that's going bankrupt? You just wouldn't do it. It's just stupid. Take all those resources of energy and love and thinking and invest them in the king of God. Yes, canned beans to pay expenses. We need to be real. But let our focus be different. Don't lose sight of that as you do your studies, as you build your career, as you raise your kids, as you enter retirement. Lay up treasure in heaven. Invest in eternity by growing up yourself in this new life, by partnering in the gospel, by building into the lives of others, by practicing radical hospitality. Even, Jesus said, I mean, he goes down really to this level. A glass of water. A glass of water. I mean, could he make it any simpler? A glass of water will have its reward. Builds character. Develops appreciation of the Lord Jesus. So, whatever happens. One thing. Now, for three minutes. One thing. Live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And here we come to the issue of courage. I know Rosari has spoken about it and will speak about it again. It was not easy to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. It was a brutish regime. Nero, through his wife, favored the Jews, which put the Christians in an even more difficult position as there was already a great deal of opposition on the part of the Jews against the Christians. And in Philippi, they were obviously being attacked quite viciously as Paul has to encourage them not to be intimidated by the pressure. We often in the Christian community have a very purest view of suffering for Christ. We see it as being called upon to renounce Jesus at the point of a sword or gun, and that happens. But more often, the suffering is much more subtle, but very real. Many of you in your careers are now having to weigh the cost of loyalty to Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, the pressure when your family is on the line, your finances are on the line, is enormous to compromise the gospel. It's enormous. I was brought up in a different world from you, so I'm not the one to speak on this. I think it's tougher now than it was for me. So this is not me getting at anyone. Our young people our young professional adults, our young parents need understanding, sympathy, support, investment of older, wiser Christians to walk them through and to help them to put first things first and learn what it is for them to me to live as Christ, to die as gain. When the gospel came to Philippi, a young girl was being exploited for her money-making potential. Potential. 
and Paul released her from the spirit that bound her and the businessmen that were exploiting her lost their income and it led to a near riot in the city and Paul and Silas in jail. The gospel has a cost. Misrepresentation, accusation, the increasing use of the law to try to silence Christians, that is going to continue and, I think, get worse. Can I encourage you to spend time in these last chapters of Acts? If you've ever wondered why Luke moves from talking about all these conversions and the planting of church and all that, and then it's court case after court case after court case, you should now know. The gospel was on trial in the first century. It is on trial these days. Stand firm. Unity, steadfastness, courage under fire as we contend for the objective faith of the gospel. And let me finish with this. A house that is divided cannot stand. If we shift from our loyalty to Paul and the gospel entrusted to him by the risen Lord Jesus, we divide the church and we compromise our ability to stand together for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, use your word to encourage us, to build us up, to show the Lord Jesus to us and then to let us see where our story fits in here. You know us. You know our story. You know our circumstances. You know our limitations, which are many. But Lord, we thank you that we are here now in this place, in this country, if that's where we live, Show us how to be your people in this place. Standing courageously together in one spirit, one mind, with one gospel, loyal to Jesus, and sharing it with grace and gentleness and respect to those around us. We pray in his name, amen.